just sounded interesting. I sort of like the idea of speed dating and I also like the idea that it's kind of experiment and we might find out a bit about ourselves and other people. Hi, I'm Joanna and I'm a participant in the experiment tonight. I turn on the tube, you can learn a lot of people's body language a lot, because nothing else to do in the tube, so you think it's quite amusing to see how people react to different bigger scenarios. So body language is a big key, because you sort of, I mean, instinctively sort of just do it. Hi, my name is Dan Copley. I am a speed dater slash lab rat. <laughs> we're about to run an experiment on speed dating, but we're not really interested in just attraction, and we're certainly, it's not really an experiment about speed dating at all. The real issue is about engagement, rapport, and interactional synchrony. I'm Adam Smith. Welcome to Pod Academy. Okay. So what do I do now? Um, please do find a seat and um, let's have out for your first drink. Um, so Can we do that now? Yeah, you can get that now. Um, My name is Dr. Harry Witchell. I'm discipline leader in physiology at Brighton and Sussex Medical School. My current research is focused on social signal processing and in particular on engagement and the meaning of social signal processing or body language. There's a bit of a hubbub in the room here. Uh, people are meeting, shaking hands, clinking glasses to say hello. There will be about 90 minutes of speed dating. Proper speed dating, there will be 15, cup, 15 tables, 15 men, 15 women. We will wire them up as unobtrusively as we can, which is to say not very unobtrusively. So we'll put stickers on their shoulders. We'll make them wear microphones near their mouths so we won't miss a single word or utterance, cough, any laughter. We'll also probably put markers on their shoes and on their thighs. And markers are going to be quite small. They'll be black dots on white. And then we'll have cameras everywhere. We'll have cameras and microphones. Then we'll have lots of helpers to make sure that we don't miss anything. The complexities of running an experiment where we have 15 films running simultaneously is it's just mind-boggling to us. Um, five, five or ten years is the way scientists interact with each other. So scientists have started to create what individ corpora, individual corpus, of data. Scientists now don't just tell each other their results, but because of the web, you actually can share the original data with someone. So here we're going to create, and this will be the first time it's ever been done, we'll get 225 three-minute speed dating interactions, 225, so you can get all the statistics you like. And for qualified, bona fide scientists, we will provide the original films so that they have the corpus of information that we started with so that they can test their own, their own hypotheses, they can do their own analysis and do completely different stuff from what we've done that we can't think of. And they can also retest our data. So science can make forward steps by having independent scientists work within one another and benefit from each other's work while not necessarily having to agree with each other. 
when I and a lot of people think about body language, I think we think very simplistically about folding your arms. You're doing it now. I can see you're leaning back, folding your arms, putting your chin down in the, the, the classic defensive mode. I think that is exactly what a lot of people think about. So could you give us some more examples about body language and, uh, and, and how we notice it in the real world and what it means? So body language, first of all, can be a whole variety of different things, not just physical movements, but actually vocal changes. So people, when they're really changing, they can change their voice if they have real stresses. So And that's classed as body language too. Body language isn't really an appropriate term. People actually sometimes call it nonverbal communication, but I don't actually like that because it's not deliberately communicative. And some people call it implicit communication. That, that seems to make more sense. I don't really like implicit communication either because it's still got the word communication. You're not really communicating things, you're actually doing something with yourself. So I don't like any of the terms, but the nice thing about body language is that anyone understands what you're talking about. So whatever we call it, could you give us some examples? Okay. In addition to changes in voice tone or voice speed, which I think are the two most valuable things you can look for, there are all sorts of things with hand gestures and facial expressions, and leg movements, and postural changes. The one that's classic from the original 1960s book by Julius Fast called Body Language, there's the one about arms folding. And they always do that with uh, a woman and showing that she's not very interested. She'll have her arms folded and her legs folded. But the thing is, it's not just what you do, but how you do it. So I'll give you an example. So here is uh, what it looks like okay, to be... Wait. I'm just going to uh, describe. You're, you're standing so up, this is what folding your arms. this like if you're legs crossed at the ankles. quite nervous. Mm -hmm. So my arms are folded, my shoulders are up, my legs are... Uh, even though I'm standing, my legs are crossed so that my right leg is actually on the left and my left leg is on the right. You look it, very uptight to me. You look looks, very uptight and nervous. Uh, so this is what people would say, either defensive, closed, or cold and I that cold in both senses the word it could either be cold like in hot or cold as in unfriendly or distant but arms folded is always assumed to be a, this kind of distant gesture but if you look at it this way right now you have your you've taken your legs apart and they're probably at shoulder width apart maybe a even a little bit further but you've still got your arms crossed but now my arms are crossed and they're much further down and you should you should notice that this doesn't look at all like uh, somebody who's uptight. This is actually standard bouncer position mm. or big man on campus or big man on the beach. It's, uh, it's authoritative. It's a very territorial position. It means I'm not going to move. And in a sense, both, both cases, the folded arms say I am relating to myself and I'm less likely to relate to you in terms of moving, but one is I'm the one where everything is folded up as small as possible is based around I'm taking up as little space as possible, whereas the one where my arms are folded and my legs are spread wide, this is meant to say I'm taking up as much space as possible without moving. So this is a very territorial gesture, which is why it would be big man on the beach or the bouncer. I think the experiment is very close to starting. It looks like almost every speed data is here and a lot of them are wired up and they've got little stickers on them marking various parts of their body that are going to be filmed. The organizers are probably about to open the proceedings. Right, ladies and gentlemen, your three minutes start now.
I'm not an expert like Harry. I can't analyze their body language and tell you what they're really thinking or what they might be thinking, what my interpretation of their body language might be. But I am very interested in how they are really, really buoyant and talking to each other and uh, they're jolly. Almost everyone I'm looking at. Of course, there are some people who are more dour and that's probably their natural disposition. But there's a few people who are you know, who, who are laughing every other second, really, and, and, and nodding along and carrying on talking. And it's really funny as well how people seem to have really gotten into the swing of things. They have three minutes to talk to one another, two minutes to fill in a form, and then move on to the next table. How do you defend this area of study against people who say it's just psychology that's made up by researchers and there's very little that we can derive from it. I wouldn't. Nonverbal communication went through, has gone through a variety of interesting phases. It's been known for a very long time. I mean, it, there are classic books in the 1800s. Darwin wrote his own facial expression book. James, the, the famous psychologist, uh, William James, wrote an entire series of papers, which I think were in the 1930s. But the real breakthroughs in nonverbal communication or body language started occurring in the 50s and early 60s uh, with some of the work from Edward, Edward T. Hall and other researchers who were out in California, anthropologists. And what they were looking at was slow motion films of people interacting. And what they saw, but these are obviously anecdotal observations, is extraordinary small gestures that seem to fit unbelievably well with people's hidden agendas or their hidden thoughts. Gestures such as? They could be anything from mouth touching or move, stepping back or moving away or, well, they can be things like leaving a room or even things like covering their eyes or interrupting is another one. In the 1960s, these ideas became popularized. Uh, and they started to filter through to the therapeutic field as well as in Julius Fast's book on body language. So he, I think he coined the term. And psychologists started making the early measurements of this. So that from a scientific perspective and from a psychology perspective, everyone wants to have precise statistics and reproducible numbers. Psychologists are in particular very interested in their stats. And what they did is they, I think they designed experiments to serve the stats rather than the other way around. So there are two issues here. One is you can do either laboratory experiments or the other, what we say today is in the wild. But in those days, it would have been observational studies. I'll give you an example of a laboratory study that it's interesting to show how scientists try and work. So people have this thing called personal space. And personal space is how close you get to somebody. So let's say, Adam, I was trying to get really close to you because I wanted to say something to you and I felt it was yeah. meaningful. At this distance... You're, you're right in my face right now. About, I'm a full six inches from you, but I can mm -hmm. see that you're fantastically uh, uncomfortable. Your mouth is making strange movements and your arm is on your shoulder doing a complete chest block like you're terrified of what I'm going to do. And rightly so. Right. In our society... And you've moved away now, and I feel a bit more comfortable. Yeah, now it feels much better when I'm further away. In our society, that kind of personal space is based on... If you're that close to somebody, it's one of the two Fs, right? It's fighting or the other F. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to ever get closer than, than, say, well, in a social distance, it would be three or four feet. 
and that's when we're being friendly and at a more general distance it could be over six feet and public distance or even further. But doesn't it depend on context because I've been on trains and uh, underground trains where people are that close to me. Yes it does. There are pictures from the both the psychological literature as well as the body language literature showing little circles around people like you're a little spaceman and you're walking around boop, 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 and there's these little signals, circles around you, and each circle determines how close you can be and whether you're safe. But in fact, I would say that these should be completely redrawn as something like more like an egg, where you are at the tip of the egg. So you have very little need for social space behind you if you're not looking. It's when you're actually face to face that it's really devastating. And that is part of the issue of social space. Now I'll tell you about the experiment that I it, so this is from the 60s, 70s, late 60s, 70s, and 80s. What they would do is they would get a, a experimental volunteer who would usually be a 19-year-old psychology student. They would say, stand there. The professor would then say, right, say stop when you feel uncomfortable. And the professor would then walk up to them and take five or six steps forward at a constant rate. So here we go. One, two, three, four, five. Say stop, Adam. Stop. What they would then do is measure with a tape measure toe-to-toe distance. Right. Okay. Toe-to-toe, not nose-to-nose? It could actually, or it could be heel-to-heel. It depends on what they were, were doing. But the point is they would get great statistics from those experiments, but it's completely meaningless in my view because there is no natural circumstance where the only thing you think about is how close somebody is to you. It's making conscious something that's normally completely unstated. That's a laboratory experiment compared to in the real world, in In, the wild, as you were saying earlier. Yes. That was what laboratory experiments were doing through the 70s and 80s. They were designing experiments which nominally would be a way of measuring, with very accurate statistics, a particular social construct. But they would have to create a wildly false scenario. Now, it's true. I run laboratory experiments now where people have cameras on them, but they actually, they're playing video games, and it's not that unusual. It's, admittedly, there's all sorts of equipment around them. They've got dots on them and stuff, but they're doing an activity that's normal. That's not, there is no normal activity where you have someone just, you stand still and somebody walks toward you, okay? Now, that was the 70s, uh, 80s, and 90s. Starting at the late 90s, and certainly through two, from 2000 onward, people have started focusing on two things that have really broken through in body language. The first is that people have started accepting in-the-wild experiments. That is, people have let, let go. A scientist have said, we still run laboratory experiments, but we also run these things where we just put stuff out, have hidden cameras or what have you, and see what people do. That feels really recent to me, that that's only been in the past 10 years. I would have thought that scientists would have been doing that for years before. Well, scientists have done bits and pieces of that, but they've not consistently done it and accepted it amongst each other. So up until recently, that would have been called anecdote. So scientists would have dismissed the results as being meaningless. And to some extent, psychologists, many psychologists, may still do that. So what's exciting is that this field of body language has become beautifully interdisciplinary. So there's a big difference between multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary. Multidisciplinary is, say, when a biochemist and a neuroscientist come together to study a single molecule and how that influences the brain. But interdisciplinary is where you have, say, a neuroscientist, a historian, and a dancer. 
come together and try and come to some sort of reasonable conclusion. The groups that are interested in body language now have completely different academic cultures. So in addition to psychologists who are less interested because they've been there, done that, it's kind of boring to them now. As a physiologist, I'm very interested in it. There are also lots of people from human-computer interaction who are interested in effective computing. And those people have entered the field and they have completely different culture and interests. Linguists are now entering the field as well. So they not only measure words, but they now measure nonverbal vocalizations. So the, the number of people who have gotten involved and from the different corners. So one of the people I work with is a dancer who's used to looking at how the body moves. It's going to make, I think, the research a lot more robust. We definitely are now using numerical techniques, and that's because of the second thing that's really been the breakthrough. Not only is it more interdisciplinary and in the wild, but we now have better sensors. So the psychologists made all of these measurements in the 60s and 70s by hand-scoring films. They were eyeballing things. And the problem is there's a lot of room for interpretation and change. We now have these sensors. We can instruct computers to detect things, and then there is no interpretation. The computer does it itself. And whether we can get the computers to work and get everyone's data to interlap will be a big deal. You talked about in the wild experiments, but I just wonder as well, when you're sitting on a bus or on a train, are you looking at people's body language all the time? Is it something that you can't escape from? Are you worried about that? I certainly have a lot of fun with it. I mean, obviously, it's not a constant worry or bother for me. I enjoy it immensely. Sometimes I will do nothing but look at body language. But when I'm talking to people, I'm still just talking to people. What runs in the back of my mind, I suppose, is some way of detecting where little signals go off in the back of my mind when people do things that don't work. So, oh, such as? So let's say someone is... It's called incongruence. In, or incongruity in the uh, field of body language. So if someone is uh, saying, oh, I really didn't do that, and then they have a big sort of cat, Cheshire cat smile, then I'd realize something funny is going on, and then I'd know that there was a good reason to circle back. Or people who make false smiles, you know, so nice to see you, you know. Oh, and you're doing it now and it's creeping me out. It's, yeah, a, so, it's a really fake smile. So there are loads of times where I'm just aware of things that look wrong, and then I investigate them more. But it's not like every single second. So you've had your hand on your mouth and stuff a lot recently, and I just haven't even noticed that. There are definitely differences between the ways that some people talk to one another and what their body language does, how they talk. So I'm looking at one chap and he's sort of shrugging his shoulders and throwing his hands up and laughing and moving his head from side to side whilst he's telling a really active story. He's using his hands all the time, loads. He's, now he's miming with a machine gun, which is probably not the right thing to do. Now he's, he's put his hands together and now he's listening to the, his, his, the de his date, the, the woman opposite him. She's talking, she's using her hands a little bit, but not so much. He's doing the thing where he's putting his hands on his, on his mouth, which I think Harry said to me is about turn-taking. It means that he's not going to speak while she's speaking.
Now there's another couple over there who are hardly moving very much at all. They are talking, but their bodies are not moving. Neither of them are using their hands in the way that they're talking to each other. And their heads aren't moving very much at all. They're just perhaps rolling from side to side, but not, not very much, just a little bit. That's the end of your three minutes for this round, ladies and gentlemen. The end of your three minutes. Do start filling in those forms, tick the lines, give the marks out of ten. Make sure you've written down your name and their name. Coming up the stairs to meet you here, I was uh, I was thinking, how is he going to interpret when I meet him and shake his hand and nod and say hello and smile and all those things? Can you give me a bit more analysis now? I'll, I'll permit you if you're not already doing it. Okay. So in terms of your handshake, it was medium to soft. I would say that you come across as quite academic. It's really uh, pathetic, but I'm looking at your clothes and there's a kind of element of geek chic about it. You're doing what's called load bearing. So load bearing is when you're leaning forward, but having at least one elbow on your knee. Now, part of that is because you're not trying not to get tired. There's a, an element of body block about it so that you're obviously not open and expansive as a person, but there's also a functional or instrumental reason for you doing a lot of the load bearing, and that's because you are actually bearing a load, which is this tape recorder, which is in your hand. So I guess what I'm getting at is there's loads of signals that are being given, but they're all, they are ambiguous. Some of them are instrumental. They're, there's a reason why you've got your, your elbow on your knee, and that's because you're holding up a heavy object, which is this tape recorder. But then there are other things where you've got a hand across across your body, and that could either be a body block or a brace for the load bearer. And I would say in your case, it's probably a body block, actually. Oh, really? Because yeah. I was thinking it's a brace. Okay, well, it can be either. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you about uh, politicians as well and about body language there, because uh, over the past two and a half years, you know, with the coalition government, there's been a lot of talk in the press about the relationship between Nick Clegg and David Cameron. So have you looked at all at their body language when they appear together. I have done David Cameron, who over the over the two years that he's been essentially running the country has vastly improved. Oh, really? Can you explain? David Cameron, when he took office, had what you would expect of uh, someone who has uh, quite a distant, possibly even arrogant, body language, someone from privilege. If you looked at his early debate performances, you would actually see him stepping back so he would remain rigid and upright, but he would step back and that would look like he wasn't engaged. And to some extent, that probably was true. He was above it all or trying to look above it all. And he's obviously had some body language coaches and experts tell him that if you disengage, you're going to look wrong for the, the general public and the voters. So now what he does is he looks very carefully at camera. He's very strong and very confident. You're doing it now, fixing your eyes on me and yes, you know, lowering your brow. Traditional leadership poses. Nick Clegg, when he first came into the major public light, which was during the debates, he's got a natural ease about him, which it made his body language better than any of the leaders of the other three parties. But he's got his own problems now, which are genuinely political. And he's always trying to come across as some guy who's just speaking directly from the hip sort of thing. He's not trying to control you or be a leader per se. He's just trying to be straight. 
that that's the thing he was always trying to do and if you watch the way he moves there's a kind of ease and grace particularly with the movement of his shoulders where he looks like he's speaking directly so your question is do they get along and you can see that they do get they are more distant to one another and they don't look at each other now as much so interactional synchrony is this idea that when people get along they will be moving at about similar times. So one person will lean in and the other person will lean in. One person will lean out, the other person will then lean out. And they'll be doing it almost at the same time. And I can show you, if you like, I can show you a film. These sorts of movements seem to be associated with people who are getting along well. And it's assumed that they represent people being able to influence one another. Shall I show you one now? Yeah, let's have a look. You've got three computers here, Harry. Is that, is that enough? I used to have five, so this is uh, five or six that were out here. So um, a lot of the work that I do concerns, well, part of it is for my secretary, and I have uh, a computer, a computer's person, but also we're doing all sorts of analyses, numerical and quantitative, and I even have to do some work myself for the university, which requires that, you know, we're all doing different things on different machines. So let's see about... You've got lots of videos on your computer. I've got zillions of videos. That's what I work from. So these are two women who are very much in rapport. Uh, and you'll see they move forward. So they lean back, lean forward, hands up, finger point, lean back, lean forward, hands back, leans back, eyes down. They lean forward. They both go eyes down. Their hands go up and they stir at exactly the same time. And is, there this, seven... is, this, is this a genuine conversation yeah, that you were this, filming? This is a conversation. I just told two people to get in a conversation. They were making movements together in synchrony for that 26 seconds, once every two seconds, while having a conversation. There's no way that someone deliberately mimicking activity could create that kind of interactional synchrony. So, interact so you, you've now seen interactional synchrony. It's about movement together. The question is, does that have an influence? And there's been a huge revolution in trying to make headway on that question. How do how you, how you think it went? Did you uh, get everything that you need? For the most part, people were dating. No one was freaked out by the headphones, despite the fact, that, you know, by the microphones that they were wearing, despite the fact that I thought it was very bizarre. And we had a full set of dates. I think we were going to have a massive amount of data. The most recent and most amazing work on speed dating was first finally published by Dan Jurafsky this year. Dan Jurafsky's at Stanford. He has access to any amount of, um, any amount of resources you can imagine. And he's published this year work based on dating events from 2005. So it takes a long time to analyze these things. I'm hoping I'll be a little bit faster on the first go. And would you do something like this again, do you think? Definitely. I'd love to do this again, both in London, now that we've got all the bugs and we've figured out everything that was going on. But also, I'd really like to run it in foreign countries to see if people are different in different countries. Compare them. Uh, yeah, I'd love, to, I'd love to see in Japan, is th are things different? In South America, how are people different? In Japan, I heard that people do speed dating events for marriage. And I think that that's even more exciting because then everything's at stake and you really are judging someone as to whether their value is as a total life partner rather than something as trivial as are they fun. 
Well, you've got a lot of data to process, so I'll let you get back to it. Thank you very much. You can read a transcript of this podcast and follow links to further information at podacademy.org or follow us on Twitter at podacademy.